So this is a uh, this is like a topical kind of workshop, right? So so um, lots of I mean it's 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 not it's not like a crazy. There is actually order in my head, but I've tried to just like cover as much as I can to make it sort of practical in terms of it. Um, so, so, uh, this is like, if you're ADD, this is the perfect workshop for you. <clears throat> as long as your random firing is, is running at the same time as mine. So that's what we're working with. I, I just put their introductory anecdotes, three of them I just was going to share in terms of shaping sort of what I'm thinking. Now, years ago, I mean, it's been 30 plus years ago in my D-Men, I took a course uh, with a guy named Donald Sanukian. If any of you are familiar with the, the book, Invitation to Biblical Preaching, he was the prof. Uh, phenomenal course. One of the things he made us, you know, we had to do sermons and stuff, and he was talking with, and he's talking to me, and he's asking me about my preaching load. And as I'm telling him, because he's, you know, he's, he'd be from a diff, little bit of different orbit, less services, and I, I'm starting listening to all this stuff, and he's just like going, you got to get rid of half of those. That's basically like, you, you because I'm just doing the stuff that a lot of you are doing, right? You know, it's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And, and then, because uh, we have school and stuff, there's a little more in there. But I was mainly focused on, he goes, you got to get rid of that. You don't have time to do that that well. And I remember thinking, well, like, yeah, that's, that's probably not going to work, but okay. <laughs> you know, and that's the part of the problem is if you... If you've got a, an enormous amount of prep responsibility, right? You need to become as effective and efficient at it as you can, right? Because if you don't, uh, you'll you'll your your ministry of the word will lag, or you may be tempted to do what too many have done, which is uh, to start to borrow other people's stuff. Right, because you're trying to, you're trying to streamline it, and so other people have preached, and you could just get theirs and warm it up a little bit. Sometimes people don't even bother to warm up. So, so it's a real problem, right? A different kind of anecdote. I remember hearing a sermon one time on what is a pretty simple text of scripture. I'm not going to tell you what the text was. Just think, think a text like, like pray without ceasing. Right, and uh, but it wasn't that text. It was a text from the Old Testament, and the guy finished the sermon, and he was telling me that he spent twenty or twenty-five hours on the sermon. And I, I didn't say this, but I thought to myself, well, you just wasted fifteen or twenty hours because it certainly couldn't have taken you that long to figure out what that text meant. Right, like pray without ceasing. Do you do you have to do exegesis for fifteen hours to figure out what that means? I don't think so. And and so the reality of it was he wasn't actually studying the text he preached on. He had started studying all kinds of other things that were only in an ancillary way related to the meaning of that text and the necessity of preaching it, right? So sometimes that kind of thing can haunt us. It's not that we have too many demands. That would be the first anecdote. Sometimes we're going about it the wrong way, and it adversely affects us, and we need to think about it that way. Uh, a man I really respected, right? And so I want to say this very carefully, and I'm not going to say who it was, but at one point, he was a full year ahead in his sermon writing, right? So, yeah, you just said out loud what I'm thinking. How is that possible? <laughs> that is only possible if you're not doing other things you're supposed to be doing, right? Because, I mean, and he was an expositor, right? Faithful to the text, but clearly had turned preparation of sermons into almost the only thing he was doing as a pastor, right? And I know a guy was on staff at that church and it said, I really need to sit down soon and got the meeting three months later. 
right? So you're, you're a year ahead in your sermon writing, but don't have time to have a meeting with a staff member. Something's off there, right? So I'm saying those anecdotes to say there's, there's lots of ways in which this issue could surface problems for us, right? We could be potentially overloaded and struggling to keep up. We could be working in a less than effective way, right? Or we could be getting out of balance with our responsibilities because of our commitment to exposition. And I am absolutely committed to exposition, right? But that's not the, it, it's not the only thing. It should be, as we were ably reminded today, the priority thing, but it's not the only thing that we do. All right, so, so we've got to think about it that way. So here comes the first like blast of ADD, all right? Overcoming some mental obstacles. Are you familiar with Parkinson's Law? All right, it's, it's stated there in the concept, work expands to fill the time allotted for its completion. Apparently the sentence did not expand to carry all the words, sorry. <laughs> work expands to fill the time allotted for its completion. Right, so if you have 10 hours to do a job, it will tend to take 10 hours. If you had only had six hours to do that job, you probably could have gotten it done in six hours, right? I mean, I say this very regularly at the start of a semester because uh, the work always seems to take the whole semester to get it done. They think at the beginning of the semester, but then they get most of it done in the last three weeks of the semester, right? <laughs> so you've got all your reading that you have 15 weeks to do, and and it just expands to take the whole 15 weeks. But in reality, it actually only took the last three. Because that's that's what can happen with us, right? We uh, Some of us are deadline junkies, right? I, I, my, my wife and I are radically different on this point. If she gets asked to speak at a ladies' treat, ladies retreat a year from now, she starts working. Right? If I get asked to speak at a men's retreat a year from now, Probably about eight months from now, I'll go, now what was the theme? <laughs> right? And that's if I'm getting ahead of the game. Because until I start to feel the pressure, I really am going to be dealing with all the other stuff I feel the pressure on. Right? But what can end up happening, though, is we can sometimes confuse activity for accomplishment. Right? We're busy studying. So we feel good about what we're doing, but we're not actually being productive in our studying, right? Because that sermon that took 20 hours to prepare, I am sure that that guy felt like he had been very active. He was in his office, he was studying, he was reading, he was researching, he was doing all of these things, but he was measuring his effectiveness by the activity rather than by the accomplishment. Did he actually faithfully unpack the meaning of that text and prepare a sermon to communicate it to people, right? So it really should have been more by the accomplishment of a faithful sermon than it was measuring it by the activity that he was involved in. Right, because someone goes, well, I study 40 hours a week. That might be good. It might not be good. Right, because I don't know exactly what you're studying, and I don't know what your output from that study is. Now, don't, do not hear me minimizing study at all. I'm trying to get us to think a little bit more effectively about it. All right, there are no bonus points for the number of hours it took you to prepare your sermon. There might be points deducted if those number of hours represent poor stewardship of your time. Right, because if you spent 20 hours on a sermon that should have taken you five hours, those other 15 hours were not being used to their greatest advantage for the Lord's work. 
right? And, and I don't think the Lord is going to measure our sermons by how many hours we spent. It's going to be by whether or not we were faithful to the text. All right, second burst. No shortcuts and no sightseeing. Right? I think both of those things need to be true. We can't take shortcuts in terms of the path from the text to the sermon. We need to follow the right path every time. Right? And and so so I'm not in any way arguing for trying to get shortcuts. I'm I would argue to try and be more effective in our pursuit of the path, all right? And I just jotted there, and I'm not, I'm not going to detail this much because later on we will, but it should go content of the text, meaning of the text, significance of the text, then your sermon. And it needs to follow that path every time, right? What does the text say? What does it mean? What is its appropriate application to the people to whom I'm speaking, and then you construct your sermon. If the shortcut is that people run, uh, run from, I have a speaking engagement to what am I going to say, right? That's the shortcut. Because <laughs> they're saying, what am I going to say about this text is actually writing your sermon rather than what does this text say. That's where the path starts. And you have to walk your way all the way through it to the sermon. Sometimes it's really easy, right? I mean, it's not that complicated to figure out what it says and what it means. And then you start to think about its significance for the present audience and then construct your sermon. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's not easy at all, right? And at that point, it's going to take longer to go down that path, all right? I feel like I've created a workshop of cliches, but here's the one I'd say is, right, the difficulty of the trail will determine the duration of the travel. All right, have you ever gone on hikes? Uh, my wife and I have gone out to Sedona a couple times, and they rate the hikes, right? And there's like, you know, the ones anybody can do, and then there's the ones that only a few people should do, and then the rest are between the two, right? The difficulty of that path I'm talking about from content to meaning to significance to the sermon the difficulty of that path is going to determine how long you're walking it. And, and that should be the standard, right? There are some paths. I mean, I've been here almost 35 years. I didn't preach through Romans 5 through 8 until last, last year. And the main reason was Romans 7, <laughs> right? Because that's, that's a notorious, I mean, I think the first time I've read an entire PhD dissertation for my sermon prep, right? Because it's that complicated working through Romans. At least I think it is. You may think it's simple, so you'd, you'd get there fast, all right? Uh, but the reality of it is it's going to take a lot of time, so you have to be ready to commit that kind of time if you're going to take that kind of a path, right? So, so the... That's the thing we need to be focused on. And so that's why I say, well, 20 hours for a sermon, well, that, that, that's, it doesn't really make sense, right? Because if you're on like a steep slope, difficult path, you may, you may pass 20 hours in a heartbeat <laughs> trying to figure out what this text means. And if it's a really easy path, you'd be wasting a ton of time if you spent 20 hours because you already know what it means. You, you picked up your English Bible, read, pray. I think I know what that is. Without, mm, CC, okay, hey, I think I got that one. You know what it says. You understand what it means. You're going to have to then wrestle with, okay, so what's the ramifications of that for, for how we live? And, and then you're going to do a sermon, right? When you're, you know, when you're looking at the, identity of the eye and the flesh and all that stuff in Romans 7, you're going to have to be dealing with all kinds of, well, if I choose this, if I choose this interpretation in this verse, what does that mean for that verse? And what does it mean for chapter 6? So you're going to do all kinds of stuff there, right? And that takes time. We shouldn't, we shouldn't ever uh, skip that path, right? Go pick up someone's sermon and let them solve it for you. Right, because that's gonna 
going to be a problem for you at some point. And and here's what I think, and I'm I'm going to say this. Uh, I'm going to say it graciously. All right, uh, but I think I think we we fundamentally. Uh, yeah, I'm struggling with graciousness. That doesn't come naturally for me, all right? <laughs> uh, I think many of us were hurt by our homiletical training because we were taught to write sermons before we were taught to do exegesis. So we actually learned how to make speeches based on Bible texts. Right? We know all kinds of stuff about para, you know, all the things that are good for homiletics, but, but it's created at times a mindset that when we open up the Bible, we're looking for a sermon. Right? We're reading it going, what are my points going to be? And, and so we're actually writing the sermon before we're really wrestling with the text and its meaning and significance. Okay, and that's what I mean by shortcut. So a good test is if when you're done with your sermon, you read over the passage and there's some part of your passage that is not addressed in your sermon, then you missed it. You did the sermon before you did the text. Right? You should be able to take your sermon and draw straight lines to every part of the text in some way. All right? this, this part of this text is reflected in this part of the sermon. If you are missing big sections of it, actually, if you're missing anything, hopefully it would only be an oversight, but sometimes it clearly is we bounce from word to word in the text and write points off of words in the text thinking that God gave us just a pile of words, not that he actually gave us sentences, propositions, ideas, and the argument that comes from them being laid out next to each other is the point of the passage. So I need to understand all of that and see how that fits together, right? Because it's not just uh, a grab bag of ideas. And, and sometimes we've been... Uh, harmed by those kinds of things, I think. And sometimes, yeah, I'll stop there. All right. The second thing on the, the sightseeing, all right. Uh, and this is the, you know, another cliche ish kind of thing, right? Rabbits can kill your preparation, not only your delivery, right? We often talk about rabbit trails in sermons. What I'm saying is that probably that 20 hour preparation of that single text was filled with all kinds of rabbit trails in the preparation. So they're studying this text and then that raises some other subject or issue and they take off and they spend three hours studying this thing over here and that thing over there. Because we live in a day where a lack of information is not our problem. right? There's lots of interesting avail information available that provides little to no benefit in terms of our present tax task, right? It really, it's really not helping us understand what the text says, what it means, what the significance of it. It's all just sort of halo around it all. And we can get pulled out there, right? We, you know, depending on what kind of resources we're using or even maybe what we've, um, what we've come to think about it, and this is, I'm just going to tell you what I do. I'm not telling you this is what you ought to do, all right? But, you know, on any, any given book, right? I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians right now, so, you know, I have a shelf full of commentaries. I feel no compelling reason to read every one of those commentaries cover to cover, right? The best ones... I'm going to probably read everything they say about the passage. After I've read those, I'll probably spot check the other ones to see if they offer any insight that the other ones haven't because I, I really don't know how valuable it is to read the same thing eight times. Right? 
So, so I, there's no bonus points just to be able to say, hey, see all these books on my shelf? I read all of those. I mean, if I'm walking around saying that, then I'd wonder why I'm walking around saying that. <laughs> and if I'm saying that in the pulpit, probably everybody out there is going like, that's nice, great. <laughs> right? It, it would be a sort of a humble brag kind of a thing. Right? The reality is I need to find out what it means, so I need to do what's adequate to that task. All right? If you're not sure on what adequate to that task is, then I'd say do a little more. Right? Don't do a little less. <laughs> do a little bit more. Right? And, and I know this is probably stretching it a little bit. Right? But as a basic axiom, the, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing shall be confirmed. That's why I tend to take two or three of the best commentaries. I don't want to just take one person's commentary on it. I don't want to just have my understanding of it unchecked by other testimonies to the truth of this text. Right, So, so I want to have access to uh, a good set of uh, resources but also use them strategically, not necessarily, um, you know, as a as just like a, a padding of the footnote system, right? Add to my bibliography in some way. Um, now, what I would say is that means here. Here's what I would say. I think as as uh, as students, we should read widely. We should read more than just what we're studying for, right? So I'd I'd say. We're filling up the reserve tank constantly, right? I'm not saying only do the bare minimum of what you need to do to prepare your sermon. I'm saying when you're doing your sermon, you are on task, <laughs> right? I have a job to get done here, and I need to be locked in on that. And nah, if I want to walk down side trails, right, I, I should do that when I can do that more leisurely, when I... When I have opportunity to that, there's other things I could not do so that I could do that, right? And that's and and we should do that. I I would agree with what was said this morning. I wasn't realizing he was going to be in here, but I would say we should be reading about hermeneutical issues and theological issues. We we should be doing all that, but I don't think the time to do that is as a side distraction. Right, it should actually be set up like so. So obviously, I should be reading about all that stuff to try and keep up to speed on some of it. And if I'm going to be preaching some specific genre, pre, I should be working right because I don't want to be figuring out the genre four chapters into it. So if I know I'm going to be preaching Old Testament poetry next spring, then then my spare time, my planned leisurely stroll should be through that stuff, right? So that I'm ahead of the game when it comes down to it, and therefore I can be focused on it, and I, and I, need, to, I need to do make sure I do that. All right? Third thing, C, proclamation, not publication. And this was implied a little bit in what I joked about the bibliography, okay? And I want to be clear, I'm not opposed to writing your sermons, I'm just trying to point out an important difference between sermons and research papers, publications, right? You, you, we, an expositional sermon is not actually an exegetical commentary. But sometimes because our first thing we do is read a bunch of exegetical, exegetical commentaries, we can actually develop notes that are like a regurgitation of a commentary, right? And, and that's not actually what we're supposed to be doing, right? We're supposed to be doing the work of understanding the passage and the function of a commentary produces its form, right? The function of a sermon creates a different form, right? We're not really supposed to be preaching in the same way we read a commentary, all right? We, ne we need to realize the difference there. And I think sometimes, because we're not necessarily realizing it, we're actually encumbering ourselves, right? Because we then now have, I'll say this hopefully charitably, 
a kind of boring form that we've created from excessive dependence on commentaries, and we're trying to liven it up to a sermon, and that requires more work. Right? Whereas if we had just been gathering up all of the information that we need to have to understand the text and then prepare our sermon, we can actually do it in a way that's more streamlined, right? Because we're not retrofitting the sermon, right? We basically have done all this stuff and now we're trying to force it into some kind of a homiletically effective vehicle. And I don't think that's as, as easy as, as, and our hearers probably don't think it's as easy as we think it is, right? Because it's hard to make an exegetical commentary interesting <laughs> in terms of sermon delivery, right? You have to have sort of an acquired taste for it, which we pick up in our training, but we forget that not everybody has been down that same path. And they really don't love to sit around and read Moo or Carson or, you know, Fee, all right? So we, we need to recognize that. And, and, and you even know that a little bit, right? So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the ways I'll say it in homiletics is, right, I don't, I mean, this, it's, this, this word Paul uses here, right, you know, it, it may be good information for me to get that it's used 53 times in the New Testament, and Paul uses it 38 times of that, and in this letter he uses it seven times. Right, that's great for me to have. I'm not exactly sure what that says to a person in the pew. Because how many times it was used, unless I'm making some point about the significance of this term in them understanding the meaning of it, right? Just to report information is not, it, it, it's, uh, it's sort of faux seriousness. It gives, the, it gives the impression of sophistication that we have studied this this much, right? And it's not necessary, unless we have a specific purpose for it, then we're just actually just having the lag over of our exegesis into our exposition that may not be as valuable to us as we think in terms of the process, right? And or or the difference between the commentary in your sermon or or what you would have to write for publication. This is the problem, right? If you're uh, you know, if uh, so I'm, I'm not gonna assume you guys would would think the same way as me about this, right? I, I take an exegetical commentary to be a commentary about the original languages. An expositional commentary is actually a commentary on the English text that will make reference and footnotes to the original text. So like Baker exegetical is different than even the New International Commentary, which is primarily about an English text, right? But then you can go to the homiletical commentary, which is actually somebody's sermons that have been turned into a commentary. Okay, so think R. Kent Hughes, think the MacArthur Commentary, think those kinds of things. All of them have value, right? I'm, not, I'm just saying they are different from each other, right? And when we start to talk doing exposition, we tend to push this way, right? And, and, and so the difference over here would be there's five possible interpretations for this. Here's the plus, you know, the positive and negatives of each interpretation. All stuff you need to do but you don't need to do it in your sermon, right? And that's why, that's why when your phone rings, right? No, so, so I just got to, you know, it was a that's a PowerPoint I just had right there to underscore it. All right, we ring bells at that point. So you you get in your sermon, you may say there's a number of different ways to interpret this and. You know, here's the three main options, but here's how I understand it to be, and you just move forward at that point. But if you're going to walk them through five possible interpretations and like four different reasons for each one of those, like like you just create a snooze fest, 
right? And at the end of the day, they're not, I mean, if you want to do this in a classroom or something like that, but, but you're, you're not, you're, now if you want to take your sermons and then publish them, you're probably going to have to take it deeper than what you would do if you're standing in the pulpit. Right? So sometimes guys are thinking, well, how do I want to write this so it'll do that? And it can actually be detrimental to the sermon and also overwhelm your responsibilities. I'm, I'm not going to hit this much, but, but I think we have to recognize that sermons are for the ear, not the eye. Right? When you're preaching, you're preaching for the ear, how people can hear you and listen and follow your argument. When you're reading a book, it's a different thing. And, and that's why uh, I'm not a manuscript guy and I'm not opposed to manuscript guys. What I'd say is, though, is if you do manuscript your sermon, you should be writing for the ear. Right? Because if, if your manuscript could go right into an article, it's actually not going to be that great as a sermon because people listen differently than they read. And you need to take that into account in terms of it. That's why if, you're, if you ever actually transcribe your sermons, you'll be amazed at how, how non-publishable they are, <laughs> right? Because, because the, the talking process and ex, you know, preaching in a live context is different than that, and you need to realize that. Now, so, and again, this is up to you uh, as to where your comfort level is, but I think if you actually deliberately worked on being an effective extemporaneous preacher, you sharpen your prep time. Right, because you're not taking the time to write out everything you're going to say. You're actually developing what is going to be effectively the prompts of what you're going to say, the meat of the thing, but not the entire package of it. And and I think uh, I think that there's I think you can make a good case for that. Right, I'm not going to make the whole case. Right, but I think I think you at least have to wrestle with the fact. I would imagine just about every sermon we see in the scriptures was done extemporaneously, not manuscripted. Right, and 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 that in all probability the dynamic of the public communication moment is supposed to have that sort of live reality to it. Like as in when you're preaching and you can see in the faces of the people listening to you that they're not getting your point. <laughs> you can actually explain it more, press it home. Or if there's resistance to it, you can begin to press it in, right? Um, and I think, I think that that actually can accelerate your process because you're actually not giving up any sense of the content and meaning and significance. You've worked through that, but now you're actually in the moment proclaiming it. And, and uh, but probably the greatest, uh, well, no, that's, I don't know for sure what the greatest is because I've never, a significant problem for many preachers is a lack of confidence in doing that. That's why I say you'd have to work at it, develop the effectiveness at it, right? And you probably won't do that if you're constantly depending on massive amounts of notes, right? You won't get comfortable away from it. And, and I think most of us could be helped by not being as dependent on our notes, right? That we... We have internalized it enough that we can speak it and, and go. But memory is an issue, right? So that, that is a part of it, right? It, you know, you, depending on how much you can recall in any given moment depends on how much prompt you need. So you need to, you'd be better off to have too much notes and actually remember what you're saying than too few notes and not remember what you're saying, right? <laughs> so that might be a given, all right? But, but don't, uh, don't forget that. 
Uh, D is basically the same thing, preacher, not researcher, right? I'm just gonna, I'll just make those two statements and let them stand, right? A professor wants to see your interaction with scholarship, a parishioner does not. You know, and, and I think sometimes we just need to stop thinking like we're, we're speaking to people who care about that stuff, right? Even, even at the low level, right? I mean, do we think about from the average person in the pew what they're thinking when we go, Osborne says, <laughs> right? They have no idea. I mean, we, these people, we know all these people. Right, but we all of a sudden start naming the guy who wrote some commentary that they have no idea who he is. And it's like, well, you're not, as long as you're giving some level of attribution, right? One commentator says, or here's, here's one way of saying, right? You're not, you're not plagiarizing, you're not uh, claiming other people's works for you, you're acknowledging it, but it's not like you're doing a footnote Right, D.A. Carson says on page 53 of his sermon or his book on this, like that, that doesn't work in a sermon. I mean, I don't think it works in a sermon. Maybe I'm just being you know, judgmental in a bad way, but I'm not judging your motives, so it's okay. <laughs> All right. So, 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 let's see if you guys are listening this morning. All right. So, so I just think we need to be careful about that, right? We, we're not, we're, we don't, really don't need to give verbal footnotes. We don't, we don't, we're not going to show, I mean, maybe some guys do, but I mean, you're not going to show at the end of your sermon, you know, a bibliographic slide that says, you know, I interacted with 15 resources for this. Your professor wants that. Your professor demands that. But there's a difference between you know, preparing for a professor and preparing for the church. And we, we, we can be accurate and diligent recognizing the different form. Right? I'm not saying do less work or more careless work than you would for a paper. I'm saying you're not writing a paper. It's a different, it's a different form because it has a different function. All right, here's, well, I guess it's not my last cliche. Unleashing the lion. You guys, you, you familiar with the story about lion taming? You know why the, you see the pictures of the guy with the chair, right? The, the, um, what, that, what that is actually about is that one of the lion tamers who survived the process figured out that a lion with the four legs of the chair doesn't attack because he keeps shifting his target. So that's why he's holding the chair up in front of him because the lion can't zero in on one target because he lacks the focus, right? And what, what, what I'm trying to make the point here is sometimes the reason we don't do well in our sermon prep is because we lack focus on the process of what we're doing, right? We, we're not necessarily tightening in on what needs to happen. Uh, you know, illustrative analogous, right? It's the difference between uh, shopping and buying, <laughs> right? Uh, or surfing the web and searching for something, right? Sometimes our sermon prep is more like shopping than buying or surfing rather than searching because we, we're just like, I've got to, you know, I've got to write a sermon and if I sat down with you and said, okay, so what's first? Would you be able to say, here's the first thing I need to do? Right? So, all right, you did that one. What's next? But the reality is sometimes we're not, we're just sort of like, I got to work on my sermon. And so for the absence of a clear focus of what we're trying to do, that sometimes means we just start grabbing books and reading them. Right? I mean, I, the way I say it in Ham 1 is, you know, what, what do you grab first? If I, if I said to you, hey, Rick, Rick Holland just, you know, got sick. He had a bad Snickers bar during one of the breaks. And I need you to preach tonight. And I need you to preach on 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Go. <laughs> What's the first thing you do? 
is it run over to the seminary library and grab commentaries on 1 Peter 5? Or is the first thing you do grab your Bible? Right? Because that, that's a significant difference. Right? But a lot of us have either been taught or have de facto turned into the first thing I do is read a bunch of what other people have said. So we actually start creating a pile instead of going, okay, I need to start with this text. Right? I need to, I need to really get this text in my mind and heart and some sense of what's going on in the text before I start getting to everyone else talking about it, right? And some would go, I got to preach tonight. I'm going to go see if John Piper's preached on 1 Peter 5, right? <laughs> <laughs> or I'm going to go, I'm going to go listen, you know, I'm going to go do a Google search and pull up what I think are the top five preachers on it. And I'm going to put them on double speed and, you know, so there's that, we're starting to go, what can I say rather than what does it say, right? So we've got to, we got to get focused on what it is we're trying to accomplish. And I think a, a lack of clarity about that can tend toward procrastination. So here's the way years, I mean, it's actually, you know, probably 25 years ago was the first time I did a, a workshop on it. And actually, that's not this one, but I, I came up with eight steps to the sermon process because I was really starting to feel the reality as a pastor and then pastors I talked to when we start to think I don't have time Right? And the reason was I kept picking up is because people thought you worked on your whole sermon. Right? And if you think I've got to do my whole sermon, you think I've got to spend eight hours. And you look at your calendar, you go, I don't have an eight-hour slot, so I can't work on my sermon right now. So it just keeps getting pushed off. Because, well, I got, I've, got to, I've got to find a slot where I can work on my sermon. And because we're thinking it's a gigantic thing, we're looking for a very big slot. And, and those slots are not often there. But if we actually broke it down to discrete tasks that we could be working on, then, then we actually could be able to maximize it. And in fact, if we understood that not all of those tax, uh, tasks require all of our tools, then we actually can liberate ourselves to be working on our sermon anywhere. Right? But if I think I have to have my library to be able to prepare my sermon, then, then I've now limited myself to my one place that I can do it. Instead of actually going, no, I can, I've got this part of it that I can be doing if I simply have my Bible and a piece of paper and a pen, right? I've got parts of it that I can just be doing. I've got 30 minutes. I'm going to work on this part of it, right? And start to, start to approach it that way so we're able to seize the moments that can be made for us, right? So those, I think those can be blocks to try and get in our way. So let me, let me suggest some helpful principles in a speedy way. Right? We should begin with the end in mind. What is, what's your purpose? And I've just put two tables there, one for in the study. All right? And here's the way I, uh, I think about it. This is the way I try to, uh, try to teach guys. All right? we, our concern moves like this. It moves from the passage to the people to whom we're preaching. Okay, so, so I have to first be thinking about the passage, and the passage has my attention, and after that, then I would move to the people I'm preaching to, okay? Because the sermon will be different depending on to whom I'm preaching, all right? The sermon is not going to be the same. The text is always the same. But where they stand in relationship to that text is always going to be different, right? So I've done it. I've done it here. I've taken the same text at the beginning of a school year and preach it in the elementary chapel and in the high school chapel and in the seminary chapel and in our church, right? Four different contexts, same text, therefore four different sermons, really, because the things I need to explain to an elementary student are different than the things I need to explain to a seminary, 
I mean, I got to really do a lot of explaining there, right? No. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, the point is, it's, it's going to be different, right? The, the points of resistance to the text are different. The points of application are going to be different. That's thinking about the people. But I have to start with the passage, and with the passage, the focus has to be go content and meaning, and my purpose has to be to know the text, know what it says, and understand what it means, and, and then I would move to what's the significance of this text for a particular group of people, that is, how do I apply it? Now, underneath that, there's a bunch of texts, uh, or tasks, right? So the survey looks for the theme, condenses the structure, expand is the syntax and grammar, dissect is the interpretation, connect is the theology. Then you get to sermon outlines, sermon content, sermon delivery stuff. So that's, that's the eight steps going through. I add a box on the in the sermon, right? What's my purpose in the sermon? And that is, it is actually to help the, the listeners know, understand, embrace, and do what God's word says, right? So I want to call them to submission to a truth that they have seen in the text and understood from the text, right? So know, understand, embrace it, they, they, they say yes to God about that, and then they do it. So those things are what I'm after. So I have to be thinking like that. I have to explain and persuade and equip them, all right? So if I know what the purpose is, then I can actually start to tackle it one by one. I, can, I know my, my first job for me is I have to know what the text says. So, so I can be doing that Anytime I have access to the Bible, right? I mean, I, I can be doing that, right? So, so I mentioned the Romans thing, right? Or whatever, like, like when I preached through, started preaching through Matthew for a month, a full month in the months ahead of it, I read Matthew, the whole thing every day, right? So Matthew 1 through 28. Matthew 1 through 28, once, once, one time, sitting down, read it start to finish for a whole month, didn't pick up a commentary, didn't do anything yet, because I needed to know what it says and be able to see in it how it is communicating, right? The same thing would be true with a shorter New Testament book or with a passage, Romans 5 through 8, right? It's going to be read, 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 read. And I can do that whenever I have time to read, right? So, so I, I have to break it down to the parts so I can do that. And here's those parts that I think are there. The theme of the passage or unit, the syntactical structure of the unit, that's actually steps two and three, interpretive issues, the theology, the sermonic structure, sermonic content, all right? And that makes advanced prep easier Right, actually, you know what, and, and, and it, makes, it makes it all easier. I mean, because when I did that Matthew one, uh, the first message in the series in Matthew, this was years ago, the person singing the special music before the sermon, and I realized I don't have my notes. I'm going to do an introduction of the whole book, and I don't have my notes. So I just got up and did it because I, I just read that book 30 times and then studied it and studied it and studied it and was ready, I, I mean, it was in me. Now, I've got a, a good memory. I'm not saying you should be able to, I'm just saying it was in me, right? It wasn't, it wasn't I was retelling somebody else's stuff. It was, it was in me. Right, because I had spent going from what does it say to wrestling with what it means and then out. I had spent enormous amounts of time with Matthew before I ever got to the guys who talked about Matthew. Right, and it it it, it can enable you to do that and accumulate those hours. Right, so that's why sometimes people how much how much time do you spend studying? How long does it take to do a sermon? I'm like, I've my whole adult life. Right, I've got a BA in Bible, an MDiv, a THM, a DMIN. I've been preaching expositionally for 35 years. Like there's no passage I come to 
that all of that isn't actually feeding into it. Right? So, so it's actually if we're if we're diving into it and doing it through the the steps we should, we, we're, we're gonna be better at it in that regard. First things first, one thing at a time. All right, that's the power of discipline focus. What's the next thing I need to do for this sermon? Right, instead of the whole sermon, what's the next thing that I need to do? Right, for this Sunday, <laughs> what do I need to do next? Right, for what's coming down the road, is there something I can be doing next, right? So in an ideal world, you know what you're going to be preaching in a couple of weeks, or at least you have a broad outline of it, right? If you're preaching through a book consecutively, you know what's ahead. So you can actually just be doing, doing the early content identification stuff for a couple of weeks from now. So you're never at ground zero in the, this week. Right? You're actually already feeding the process in it. But what, what's next? Do I need to find the theme? Do I need to understand the structure of the passage? Do I need to figure out these difficult interpretive things? Right? Do, I, do I need to do an outline for the sermon? What, what's that thing that needs to be done? What's that one thing that you need to focus in on and accomplish? Because when you get that one thing, you start to get after it. Right, but when you're thinking, where do I start? You usually end up sitting there rather than starting. Right, so so have that one thing clear in your mind, and and then get get after it by God's by God's grace and help. And here's what I'd say is jot the way I do it. Uh, you know, so I I still I'm 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 a luddite. I didn't go to the the Logos seminar because I don't have Logos. I still use paper and I like commentaries. And I found I can't, I always get mad when I put highlighter on my computer screen. It doesn't stay. So, you know, so. but what I do is when I'm using that paper and I'm working, so let's say I'm, I'm working on the early part. I'm looking for the theme of the passage, right? What I always end up doing basically is I create a box over here with questions and observations because I don't want to get sidetracked chasing it all down, but I don't want to lose it. So I'll write, what does this mean? <laughs> or how does this tie in? What do you do with this? Right? And I'll, I'll just make a note of it. I'm keeping that because at some point when I get to what's, for me, this is actually like step four, right? Or step five, the interpretation and theology, then there's the list I've been gathering. And, and usually those are the ones I'm going, okay, I got to do some spot checking commentaries to see because I'm trying. Now, I try to answer those first before I go to the commentaries because I want to see if I can figure it out. But then, then I'll go and, and take a look at it. But I, I just put it off to the side so I don't lose it. Right? But I don't take off down that rabbit trail because you can end up spending an awful lot of time before you circle back to the task. And pretty soon... You know, you've just been running off and you still haven't accomplished this, right? And you need, to, you need to stay focused on that. And then prepare the sermon with the listener in mind. Here's, I want you to be clear on this, right? Preparing the sermon is at the end of the process, right? So, so passage, people, I've, I've finished the passage. Now I'm preparing the sermon. And when I prepare the sermon, I do it with the listener in mind because it's actually their relationship to the text that's going to affect the sermon, right? I am, I'm trying to communicate the timeless truth of God's word to a group of people in a particular time and place, right? I, uh, lots of us know the old Phillips Brooks quote, right? Uh, preaching is divine truth through human personality. So it's a pretty good quote. Warren Wearsby, I think, upped it, though. He changed it to, it's divine truth through human personality to human personalities for the glory of God and their edification, or something like that. But it was, it's not just coming through you, it's actually coming to a specific group of people. And that influences the sermon. So, so I need to, to go to the end and ask myself questions about their relationship to the text. 
what's the most effective way to take them into the text and then press its claims upon them, right? Because what here's what I'd be saying, and I don't have time to unpack this completely, but there's a difference between the outline of your passage and the outline of your sermon. Those are not the same thing. Sometimes they can look almost alike, but that definition of expository preaching fundamentally, fundamentally goes wrong when you come to narrative and poetry. Because the outline of a narrative is not actually the best way to communicate its central idea. Right? Those are like scenes. So, so what can happen? Sometimes it works well. But, but, you know, the one I always illustrate is like David and Goliath. Someone thinks, okay, I outlined the passage. That's going to become the outline of my sermon. And all of a sudden, you know, how to beat the giants in your life. Get up early in the morning. You know, take care of your responsibilities. Because what, what else are you going to say about him getting up and heading out to the field and getting, putting the chariot in somebody's control? Right? That's, that's just part of the narrative's plot line getting to the point. It's not an independent point for a sermon. Right, so so what you can have, or like the, or like the the poetry at times is very um, cyclical, right? It's 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 making a point in a repeated way because it's poetry, and so for you to outline it like you would the logical argument of Paul's letter, you're actually starting to obscure what's going on, right? And I think we have to break that habit at least enough to know. That when I go, when I'm going to preach this passage to somebody, I should be asking questions like, so, so what's the best way to get them to understand this passage and submit to it? Right? And sometimes that means I need to start at the end of the passage. Because sometimes Paul has put the punch at the end and he's built to it. But what I need to do is actually help them see that and then move them to it, right? I'm, I'm not disregarding the structure of the passage because that's going to actually help me explain it to them. It's going to help me develop the argument of the passage, but there's no bonus points for making the outline of the passage the outline of your sermon. The, the argument of the passage should affect the structure of your sermon, right? If something was a cause over here, It'll be a cause over here. I mean, it's, you're, you're, you're doing it that way, but you're really, you could, you literally could have an expositional sermon that is three main points. First point, explanation. <laughs> Second point, argumentation. Third point, application. And you could have been completely faithful to the text. Right? Because your sermon was explaining and convincing and applying the truth, right? You, 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 we've got to recognize what is the task that we have to do. And honestly, sometimes that can liberate us because I think if we have a false idea about our, false is wrong word. If we have a hard rule that doesn't work in some passages, then we're struggling trying to get it to work. Right? I need to have my sermon outline follow the order of that passage, and then we're pounding ourselves on this outline instead of going, what's the point of this passage? And can I communicate that to them and take them into the text so they can understand what it's saying, understand what it means, and then see why this is God's will for them? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to accomplish that objective, and I need to make sure that the, the form of my sermon is serving that. The outline doesn't become the master at that point. Right? The outline isn't the master. The text is the master. All right, so in the zero amount of seconds I have, let me just, let me, let me just uh, explain what I did here, all right? So incorporating some practical steps, I think what we have to do is focus first on the theme. That's the key to the text that unlocks the sermon. 
right? Every unit of logical communication is a unit because it has a dominant idea, right? It's a unit because it has unity. The theme is what gives it unity. So that's what you're supposed to be pursuing, right? What's the theme of this unit? The thing which makes it a unit and therefore it has unity. So I find that I've got a sermon. Now the rest of it is just trying to help people see why this is the theme of the passage, right? Look at these key terms that Paul uses that tells us what he's trying to say here, right? Here's the underlying question that Paul is trying to answer because underneath every <coughs> proposition is an implied question, okay? If I say this session ends at five o'clock, that's a proposition. What's the underlying question? What, why is it ending? Well, that's what I'm thinking, but what time does it, right? Lunch is in the gymnasium. Where is lunch, right? Now, if I said lunch is in the gymnasium at 12 o'clock, I just loaded two questions, but the context would tell you which of those was the dominant question. Right? It would, it would actually, the context would help you understand what the biggest of the questions is. And the topic of your passage is actually the largest question that is being answered in this passage. And the assertion is the answer. <laughs> right? So, so uh, this morning, my passage, I would suggest the largest question is why should the Corinthians stop judging God's servants. Because that's the single imperative that really dominates it. Stop doing this. And everything up to that point was telling us the reasons why. Right? So the topic question is, why should they? Or And then you could eliminate the question part to say the reasons why or the cause for not. Right, that's the topic, and the assertion would be something to the effect of because all human judgment is insignificant and premature in light of God's accurate and appointed judgment. Right, and that's, that's summarizing the text into a single idea. And if I have that single idea, I'm ready to roll. Right, I mean, if I've gotten to that idea, I am ready to roll. I just am now deciding how am I, I going to get after that? What do I need to explain? What do I need to convince them of? What do I need to show them in terms of where this shows up in life? All right, that's really, that's what you're doing. All right, so the second thing there, B, strategically and selectively develop the sermon content. And I just wrote down, uh, basically what I would say is, uh, what you could do is you take those uh, A to H, right? And that's answering what you need to possibly explain. So you look, you've done all your research. You've gathered up all your information about the text. You understand what the major point of it is. You're going, how do I help them to see what this says and means? Here's the questions you'd ask to fill in the content of your sermon. You might not answer all of them, but these would be the ones that you'd be answering to do. Right? What do I need to do to help them buy it, to buy into it? And, and that is, do they, do they see the connections in the text, the logical connections? Do, does this possibly seem contrary to life? And, and how do I address what might be practical or apparent objections? Probably where the rubber meets the road most often is what competes for their obedience, right? They, they would say they believe this, but they're actually not living it out because they believe something else more. <laughs> So what do I have to zero in on that and show them why God's claim should have higher importance to them? Then where does the primary relevance of the text show up? And this would go back to the aim of the text. There might be, there might be many legitimate mini applications. And here's, so I'm, gonna, I'm just, I'll be done in just a second, all right? Well, that's hyperbole. <laughs> Let's be honest, it's not going to be a second. All right. <laughs> so, so here's the thing is we tend to go like this, right? We tend to, 
to define an expository sermon like this. And so what we sometimes tend to do is then, so I have to go through every point and go explanation, argumentation, application. And so we have a bunch of mini applications which may be valid, but we actually are forgetting the primary application of the text, right? This passage, because it has a single dominant idea, also has a single dominant application. And, and sometimes we're so afraid of being boring and we, uh, uh, we, I'm trying to say it gently here. Like we, we've basically approached it like we have to spoon feed a bunch of applications to people in our churches or else they won't be interested in our sermon. Right? So we got we to gotta come up with some way to show them that this little point in my subpoint has relevance to them. So then, so what we do is we, we get a million different little relevances out there and we sometimes uh, create the difference between buckshot, <laughs> right, and a slug. Right? The text actually has a primary application which comes out of the barrel like a slug. Right, if you're a deer, deer hunter, right, a slug usually is their first shot. Then it follows up with buckshot, because if you didn't kill it on the first shot, it might be moving, and you need something that's going to spread out. But sometimes what we're doing in our sermons, we're we're firing all buckshot. We're fun. We're firing a thousand pellets that are going bing, 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 instead of actually having a primary application that's the application that is the primary point of the passage and us driving that in because it's what God says, right? So what's that primary thing that we should draw a conclusion out of this based on the text? So we're asking ourselves for that stuff. So here's what I'm simply saying is, if you know where you're going down the path and you have a set of tools or questions to ask, what's the theme? What's the structure of this passage, right? What are the important grammatical relationships that are here? What, what's the interpretation of significant parts of the passage? Where does this fit into theology? Contribute to it and controlled by it. Then I go, okay, so now how do I need to structure this sermon? And what's the content that goes into this sermon? And then you do the introduction, conclusion, transition stuff, right? So if you know what the steps are, then you can start on Monday morning going, okay, what's the first step? And all of a sudden you get a phone call. You got to go to the hospital and visit somebody. And usually you're taking your Bible along, right? In some form, because you're going to share scripture. You get there and you find out you got to sit there for 30 minutes before they're doing. Man, you're going, okay, I got to find the theme of this passage, what, what are the, what's the author's key terms? What's, what, where's the weight of what he's saying here? What's the big idea, right? I can, I can take those 30 minutes and, and make the most of them because I'm, I'm narrowed in. I'm not sitting there going, man, I got to work on my sermon. I can't work on my sermon, so I'll, you know, I'll send emails, right? Because you're thinking the sermon is going to take, you got, you got to have all those books. You got to have everything. And it's, no, the first step is like, what does this text say, <laughs> What's its point, right? And 